Hey guys, Abel here once again, and just like about two weeks ago, this time once again we have a bit of a special episode because I've had the pleasure to be on someone else's podcast once again, and that is the Breaking Muscle Podcast, where I've been interviewed by this awesome gentleman called Tom. I would rather not butcher his last name, but he has been asking a lot of good questions from me about how I got into training, body fat percentages, ratios of bulking to cutting, the biggest keystone habits for staying lean and maintaining a good, healthy lifestyle for the long term. And I think it can be very valuable to many of you who want to make fitness, staying lean, building muscle a part of your life and not let it take over your life completely. In other words, maximizing your results in the gym and in the kitchen while not turning into an obsessive person and not jeopardizing your productivity in other areas of life. So I think this was a really cool interview. I want to give a quick plug to the Breaking Muscle podcast, and I'm going to be linking their resources in the show description below. Feel free to check out the timestamps. And if you enjoy this episode, then I would really appreciate if you could leave a five-star rating on iTunes on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. And that's pretty much all I have to say about this intro. Thank you for Tom once again for interviewing me, and I hope you guys enjoy this talk. So with that, let's get into the show. Hey Abel, so as I just said in that introduction, really excited to have you on board today uh, to discuss things uh, and maybe looking at not so much what's optimal, but what's sustainable and where that grey area is and how guys can can get the most, not necessarily from the least, but from the most that matches with their desire uh, to put effort into getting themselves in great shape. So can you tell us a little bit more about your background, uh, how you got involved in the whole fitness industry, uh, you know, where you were a sporty kid growing up that this all came naturally to, um, you know, a little bit of your backstory for anyone that doesn't know. Yeah, absolutely. So pleasure to be here, first of all. Um, as for what my background is, I think it's sort of a typical story in that I got into fitness as a way of trying to fix myself in a way, you know, I just wasn't happy with a mm -hmm. lot of things in my life at the time, which is kind of normal, I guess, for anybody in their early 20s. That's just a confusing and annoying period. Yes. You know, social pressure, what's going to happen with your career and all, just a lot of weird things that are culminating in your life and fitness and working out and controlling my nutrition felt like the one stable thing in my life that I could really nail down. And I got really passionate about it. Uh, very soon I became overly obsessive about it, actually. And that was sort of a thing that I almost needed, I think, at that time, because by really pouring myself into the, my fitness pursuits, I could just forget about other areas of my life that were kind of lagging behind. And then over time, once that initial thrill of that obsession kind of wore off, where it was no longer as exciting to, oh, cool, so I could hit my numbers again today, I, and I still have abs, and I hit a new PR in the gym. You know, that was really exciting for a while. After some point, it was no longer as exciting. However, I started to experience some of the negative implications of all that obsession, and that showed itself up on my eating behaviors. So I started to develop some really funky, weird behaviors around food. Uh, it started impacting my social life. I started avoiding people just so that I could control my nutrition better. My workouts were mm -hmm. no longer as enjoyable and they just became more of a means of, you know, burning calories, making room for my post-workout meal and uh, just it, it became basically a barrier in my life or something that was just holding me back from other stuff that I would have wanted to do. And 
I started kind of fighting my way through that. That was a very painful and long process. A, a lot of lessons learned and a lot of weird and hard battles fought in that process. But that really made me more passionate about fitness than, than anything else before that. All the little successes I had or the first time I saw my abs or the first time I could hit, you know, two plates per side on the bench press, you know, all those things were just trumped by those uh, epiphanies that I gained when I started to create a more sustainable way for myself in fitness. And that made me really passionate about it. And that made me want to get into the industry initially just as an interviewer. I was just recording podcasts with some of the smartest people out there like Eric Helms. I remember the first time I interviewed him, that was one of the best experiences I had in my entire life up until that point. So I started doing that. And eventually I said, you know what, like, I'm so much into it anyway, let's just try to make this, you know, a side hustle, kind of a career path for myself in a way. And, you know, a couple of years later, I'm still in the fitness industry, I guess. So that's my backstory. Yeah. Well, so for anyone that doesn't realize the the, the sort of back catalog of interviews you've done is a, a kind of a who's who of uh, of fitness. Certainly, uh, evidence based like that that whole crowd. You've you've pretty much covered everyone maybe multiple times, uh, which yeah. is definitely worth checking out the the episodes. There some some excellent uh, interviews, and I, th- I think it's really in- interesting that you first touched on that whole. I want to fix myself because I know from my personal experience, a lot of the guys I work with, they're, they're sort of skinny guys who lack in self-confidence. They're just not, they're unhappy and the gym offers them that route to what they perceive as exactly what they want and the happiness. Uh, but then there's those stumbling blocks and, you know, you, those rites of passage almost you have to go through where you, you, it seems like you have to go a little bit crazy with your food and suddenly get you actually with this, this pursuit that should be adding to your life. It ends up controlling your life and you, you, uh, you, you start worrying about your macros or when you're eating certain meals or, or saving up, um, all your calories for crazy blowouts and all this sort of thing. So it sounds very familiar to me. I've, I've, I've been on some similar things and lots of guys I've worked with have been through those. So I think it's really, well, it's good to hear actually. Uh, so people can recognize that when you're hearing people on podcasts, they're not all these robots that, just have everything sussed from the get go and uh, it all comes easy. There's, there's a journey that has to, you have to go through to, to learn these things. Uh, so thank you for sharing that with us. Absolutely. Now, just, just sort of looking back, you, were you, would you describe yourself that you were someone who was actually, you know, quite skinny and wanted to gain weight as opposed to, I had JC Dean on and he, he was someone who was, had also always been kind of like the chubby kid. And then now his uh, great uh, epiphany was, he found he could get himself in shape and it didn't have to control his life. Were you kind of the, the opposite end of that spectrum? Yeah, that, that's a that's an interesting question, actually. I, I wouldn't say I belong particularly to the skinny or the fat crowd. Uh, as, um, you know, I, I remember having a lot of insecurities when I was a little kid about being too chubby because, and I was almost idolizing the skinny kids in my class. And it's really funny mm-hmm. because now looking back on those pictures, I see myself and I see a healthy perfectly good shape just a really beautiful glowing kid and i see all these skeletons that like you know like some uh, <laughs> yeah it's uh it, I, I remember having a lot of insecurities about that later yeah. on as i got into my teens i started getting into sports and then i had more of like a, just a normal athletic look i wasn't i was never the jacked kid in my class or anything yeah. like that i wasn't that one weird kid with abs or anything like that but i wouldn't say that i was chubby by that point Interestingly, the first time I really got actually chubby was when I was already into fitness. You know, like once I I was trying to control my food too much and eventually I broke down and went on a couple of binges and 
one day I looked up and it's like, holy shit, I'm actually fatter than I was ever before I got into fitness in the first place. So that was sort of an interesting uh, learning experience. But if I had to like nail down one thing that I was insecure about before anything else, that was more so just trying to be leaner, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the first time you saw your abs. I know from personal experience and working with clients, it's kind of like this landmark, landmark moment for people where uh, they may not have ever been fat, but they've never seen their abs. And when they suddenly see them, well, it's <laughs> they look for any excuse to have their shirt off, first of all, it seems. Uh, yeah. Just in the, in the weirdest situations as uh, suddenly they need to be like wiping their brow with their T-shirt or taking their shirt off. But yeah. but it, it, it boosts just that just that little sim thing of having low enough body fat to see your abs suddenly seems to transform them, boost their confidence. They, uh, they walk a little taller, you know, they're a bit more self-assured. So it's, it's amazing how powerful... Uh, small changes in our physique can actually be to yeah. uh, to our whole uh, our whole life, and so when you when you sort of started to get a handle on things and were seeing results, did you find that that really had that positive effect on your life? Yeah, you know, it's it's really funny because just yesterday I was talking about this with someone who is actually a competitive bodybuilder, and we both kind of agreed on the fact that getting in shape and changing your body composition it has this really weird slope, sort of nonlinear slope in terms of how that impacts other areas of your life, such as your self-confidence and just how you value yourself. I think if you are someone who is struggling with self-confidence issues, maybe you compare yourself with other people and you feel like you just don't quite belong, then changing your physique and getting into better shape initially is one of the easiest ways in which you can turn everything into a more positive direction. And you will probably find yourself being more self-disciplined. You learn about structure. You learn about things that mm -hmm. maybe you didn't think you could control before and now you know you can and it definitely gives you some self-confidence just because of the fact that you look better now once you got from let's say on a one to ten scale or zero to ten scale you go from a two out of ten up to a seven out of ten which is not that hard you know like most guys get there in the first you know one or two years of their training for sure that is going to have a really huge effect. And I definitely noticed that on myself. Like I, I just, um, it, for Christ's sake, I mean, it, it helped me through some borderline depressive periods, mm -hmm. just that process. Now, once you're already at a 7 out of 10, and then you're really, really working hard to get to an 8 out of 10, and then eventually a 9, and then a 10 out of 10, that process, it's not nearly as cut and clear that that is going to have a mm -hmm. positive impact on other areas of your life. Like I, I found, found it for myself for sure, him you've been in this game for a long time, maybe you have noticed this at some points as well, that you can get so fixated on fitness and just trying to optimize everything that it can flat out make you less successful in other areas. Yes. Like it's not, not so much the case anymore that, oh, I'm so disciplined with my diet or with my training and it carries over to my business and into my relationships. It can make you less social. It can make you more slack on your work and things like that because you're just like so invested into it. And, you know, if anything, a contest diet or something mm -hmm. like that can definitely mm -hmm. do that. But I think it also applies if someone is just always trying to gain weight like crazy and, and, and just bulk up. I mean, I, I talked to a guy who said that he was gaining mass like crazy. He was always a skinny kid and he didn't go out to socialize at night because he was afraid that he might expend too much energy and his <laughs> surplus might get smaller. So no matter what your goals are, it can get to the point where there is just that huge amount of, you know, just severely diminish diminishing returns. So yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting way how that tends to work. I don't know if you have the same experience. Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you're right. The whole, the whole point is this should add to your life, not rule your life. And then, as you say, I think it's a good example. You have, 
uh, sort of uh, putting some numbers on it, almost hit, hitting that seven out of 10 threshold can definitely be a very positive experience for everyone. But then finding those marginal gains from then on, you, that, well, for every, in a, uh, in a previous uh, podcast, Valentin uh, Tambosi said, for every yes, there's a no. Mm-hmm. And you kind of end up making those decisions because you're so obsessed and you don't realize what you're saying no to. So usually until it's, uh, it's got a bit drastic and a bit too late. And then, and then you kind of realize how, how silly potentially you've been. Um, and I know that I went through that. There were you know, all, all sorts of social instances where I was kind of doing weird things to mean that I could, uh, I could be there, but. I wasn't really there. For example, going to like watch an international rugby match with my friends and then I took a little Tupperware with nuts and a protein shake to watch this game with guys I'd known since I was like at school. They're yeah. all having beers, but I'm just, I'm stood in a pub sneaking some, uh, some walnuts or something out of a, a Tupperware and have it and sipping on a protein shake. And, uh, it's about those times that you sort of have a realization that, uh, hang on a minute. Maybe, maybe this isn't really having the positive effects I thought it was. Yeah. I think where us content producers tend to run into problems sometimes or where we get it wrong is that we forget that what those yeses and nos are for us is it's not going to be the same case for those that are potentially following our, our content. Mm-hmm. So for, for Valentin, for example, I mean, he is, he's a bodybuilder. He's a coach. He has a lot of clients. He's a content producer for those people. So for him saying no to potentially a social event or maybe deprioritizing some other really important things in order to improve his physique is actually going to directly benefit his business. In a way, that's almost like work. Like, mm-hmm. not really, but I'm sort of working towards some other thing besides just fitness that is meaningful to me. But those those answers are going to be very different for me, especially for Valentin, than for the guy that might be following us who just, you know, wants to live a better life and have his physique improvement just being a part of that. Yes. Yeah, 100% correct. I mean, very recently, I had a couple of photo shoots to get some content for my website, my uh, Instagram page, and anyone who follows me on Instagram knows they can't move for those pictures now. Apologies, guys. But um, yeah, it's the same thing. I, I realized that my motivation there, I've got a date booked in with a photographer, first of all, so I don't want to look like, you know, out of condition in front of them, but I need these images for my business, which is a bit different to the guy I'm training who's going on holiday to Mykonos with his girlfriend who kind of wants to look like a like, like he lifts on the beach, but it, he's not so invested yeah. in it. There's not the, you know, not, not the same priority placed on it. And therefore, knowing the habits that I'll have in place and those those no's that I'm comfortable making will be different for him. I think it's mm. a, a brilliant point you make. Um, and so we've kind of skirted around the uh, subject of how we, we almost all seem to give ourselves some kind of borderline food, uh, disorder or eating disorder, with, mm-hmm. you know, as we, uh, investigate this and then uh, explore our, our fitness journey further. And yeah, for most people, they, they come out of that the other side better off. Some people don't. So in my experience, finding ways to set habits that are positive and uh, sustainable is is crucial when I'm working with clients. So can you give us some examples of you know particular habits either you use or have you found effective for other people to set themselves up for success so they're not trading their life for for hitting a super clean diet or whatever? Yeah. So dieting or eating in general is something that I think it's very important to adopt habits or systems that you can rely on on autopilot, basically, and you have to invest as little mental power or mental energy into that as possible. Because nutrition and your diet is something that is is there mm-hmm. with you three, four times a day, seven days a week, and it's going to be like that for the rest of your life. So if you get that wrong too early, that can really just, it can mess with people's relationship with food for, for years to come at, at any given time. So... 
I emphasize that a lot to give people simple systems and also kind of a, just a mindset of how to integrate all of that into their lives. So a couple of things that I like to recommend when, when I'm working together with someone, I give them a document and there is a lot of guidelines in there. But two that is always in there is a couple of keystone habits. And one of them is the baseline plate of food, as I like to call it. So each plate of food, whenever it is or whatever the circumstances, should have a high-quality protein source, which could be whatever. It mm -hmm. could be eggs or a steak or fatty fish or if you're vegetarian, whatever, something else. Then it should have a carbohydrate slash a fiber source. And then it should have or could have, depending on what your goals are, whether you're gaining muscle or dieting, some discretionary calories, some additional carb or fat source. And if you just think about putting together a meal like that, for example, it just makes decision-making so much easier. And then you can avoid putting together these completely insane combinations of foods that don't even make any sense. You actually <laughs> think about a plate of food like your grandmother used to tell you. Yes. And then other than that, a baseline selection of foods or like a core backbone of your diet, a list of foods that you're kind of just loosely holding in your mind. You know that they're always there and those are the foods that are you're generally going to eat every day. And you're flexibly rotating through them, but not no major shifts. You know, the changes should be things like instead of tomatoes, today I will eat cucumbers or something like that. Instead of a fatty steak, I will eat fatty fish, something like that. If, if someone just follows these two rules, and then there are other things that we can talk about, like mindfulness, for example, but if they just follow these rules, it just makes the whole process just so much more easy, less mentally taxing, and then I think we would see a lot less of these message board craziness stuff that we see on Facebook and on Instagram, people posting their diet and asking for feedback, whether they're doing things wrong or right. It's simple. You can follow it. And that is how most people tend to eat, how, who remain actually in great shape, not just for a couple of months, but for years to come. So I think it's all about adopting simple mm -hmm. habits and simple systems, putting the whole thing on autopilot and then just making small modifications as you go. So that's sort of the baseline template that I tend to work with. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, that illustrates the point very nicely. And actually, it brought to mind, are you familiar with precision nutrition? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I remember like uh, thinking it was brilliant, their whole, you've got like a fist size portion of protein, uh, then like a palm of carbs or whatever, and like a thumb size portion of fat. Now, it doesn't mean that people uh, need to measure out and work out how, how big their spoon is compared to their thumb or whatever, but they have their hands with them. It means they can eyeball things. And once they know that, yeah, as you say, a plate of food should look like a plate of food, there should be a protein source, some vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. It means that they've got so much more flexibility and they can be uh, more relaxed if they're the people I work with are often having to go out for dinner at restaurants to entertain clients. They can make choices and their plate can, you know, it looks in, it, it aligns with their goals, what they're eating. As opposed to before, they'd be stressing about, oh, someone told me I had to do like zero carb or this and this. And then all these little details, they don't, they don't have the filter to see where they fit into the big picture. And having, yeah. having that just basic, like you say, keystone habits is, is a phenomenal one. And another key element, I think, from there you mentioned was that whole being on autopilot. So you're minimizing the decisions you make because I find that decision fatigue is a real problem for people. Yeah. And in, in my experience, people don't really cheat at breakfast, yeah. but they're like, go off the deep end come the evening when they've had to answer 300 emails, be in a four hour meeting at work, stress about all these tiny little details. And they, they're just exhausted by the end of the day and, and they can't be logical about their yeah. and, and rational with their food choice. So having this set up on autopilot, uh, 
it's, I'm sure it's not completely foolproof, but it, it sets them up for success. So I think it's a really smart way to go about things. Yeah. And, and also, I think it's important to clarify that, you know, I think there is value in going through their first body transformations for people initially. Mm-hmm. So I think it is good to experience, you know, you know, bulking up, getting up to a nice, strong level where maybe your body fat levels are a bit higher than what you would want, but actually pushing the calories, experiencing how that feels then experiencing a cut as well, you know, going just just having that experience so that you even have a reference point. Because initially, a probably people are won't even necessarily appreciate the value of putting things on autopilot because they are just excited about being super hardcore and doing things the most optimal way they can. So if I'm going to be working together with someone who is a novice and is just looking to, you know, even work up to like a bodyweight squat or bench press or something. I'm going to be like, okay, you know what? Let's hit these numbers and let's get you strong and let's get you some good early results. And then later on, as they gain some self-efficacy, some confidence in their ability and also some general skills like calorie awareness, which can be very important, then over time, moving them into these more sustainable approach. Um, and that's why, by the way, I don't know what your experience is on this, but that's why these days I'm not really a big fan of working together with people for four weeks only at a time because then it kind of just forces your hand into trying to get them quick results but actually like having a good like three or so months because then initially you can go through these big transformations and then later on teach them the more sustainable way yes something that they can apply in the long term yeah absolutely yeah well i mean if you're working with someone for just four weeks the only real way you can make a a noticeable visual differences to them is put them in an extreme calorie deficit Uh, and set them set them up for a massive rebound so yes i think you're i think you're spot on there and i I really take your point about there's value in them going through these experiences uh, so they can learn how they feel but also the benefits of being on autopilot much the same way uh, tracking macros for a period of time i think can be a really valuable teaching tool for someone uh, to then go to a more uh, intuitive style of eating uh, down the road but they 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 need that level of understanding and knowledge uh, that they can get from from tracking macros that then informs their ability to to be a little bit more flexible uh and relax with things later down the line um which is again actually something i think people miss some people that talk about how you should be eating intuitively well that's great if you're essentially an expert on training and nutrition you know how to do that but if if you ask one of my you know clients when they first come in to eat intuitively they're going to have a croissant and donuts with a few coffees and then a few beers i mean it's it's not going to work out well so you, you kind of need that level uh, and you need to go through these processes. So I think that's an, that's an excellent point. Um, so, uh, so, that we, so we've got like that, that keystone habit of that, how a plate should look. Are there any other nutritional diet based habits that you like to, to put in place for people? The, the one pet peeve of mine is mindfulness, mindful eating. And this is something that, you know, by mindfulness, I basically just mean eating in a non-distracted way. Uh, so not having your phone around, not watching TV or being in front of your laptop. That is that is something that is a very hard sell oftentimes. And this is something that I sometimes abandon as well. It's like my first meal of the day typically is always very mindful or I wouldn't even say very mindful. I simply just don't have anything that would distract me from eating. I just scarf it down and then move on. And then sometimes in my post-workout meal or during my dinner, I will catch up on my YouTube subscriptions on my phone or something like that. And anytime I'm doing that, I'm always surprised by how much more likely I am to just a little bit overstuff myself, you know, not going on a binge or anything like that. I'm luckily past that, but just just eat to the point where I get a little bit bloated, I feel a little bit gross. 
That's the first thing that I get surprised by. The second thing is how difficult it is once I get into the habit of doing that to abandon it and go back to a more mindful way of eating. It's always surprising to me. And that kind of explains why it's such a hard sell. And what I see with other people, it, it can almost be like like a withdrawal process from a drug or something like that. It can be really behaviorally addictive to to eat in a more in a distracted state and do other things. And it has its appeal. It's kind of fun, like listening to a good podcast or watching some cool video while you're eating. It, it, it's a lot of fun for sure. I will be the first one to admit it. But there is just something magical about experiencing food and being more in tune with how your body is getting more satiated with each and every bite. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a meditative process, but simply focusing on the act of eating, it gives a much deeper satisfaction from that meal. It's, it's, it's hard to give a good analogy, but it would be something like popping up a caffeine pill and going to the gym, like you will feel the mm -hmm. caffeine, you will feel it kicking in eventually. And that's one sort of way of enjoying caffeine versus sitting down with a cup of coffee and journaling or something like that on a Sunday morning. I don't know if you've done that, but it's a lot of fun. Like sipping on a cup of coffee and writing down your thoughts, it can be a borderline euphoric feeling. It's sort of like that between mindful eating and non-mindful eating. So that's sort of the very gimmicky pitch for that. But it actually has a lot of research behind it. Like people, when they are distracted, they tend to eat more. Some studies even show some pretty crazy numbers, like 42% more or something. In social situations, people also tend to eat more. And it also just makes you much less aware of your body signals. You don't quite notice the point where, really, I had enough. I'm very satisfied at this point, but I kind of just keep eating because there is still some time left from my TV show or from yes. this podcast that I'm listening to. So. That is sort of like a hack. Like even if someone is really knowledgeable in terms of nutrition, that can make the difference between being able to maintain, you know, 12% body fat year round as opposed to 15 or 10% instead of 12. It can actually make a big difference. And right now, for example, that I'm cutting, I, for the initial couple of weeks, I didn't use this because whatever, it was just fun to watch videos while I was eating. And now I re-implemented it into my life. And man, it was almost like, almost like a diet pill or some fat burning supplement or something like that. It just made the whole process so much easier. And the good news is if you're doing that while gaining muscle or while bulking, for example, you don't necessarily have to diet in order to enjoy the benefits. The meals are a lot of fun. Like when you're eating calorie-dense, tasty foods during a gaining phase, for example, eating mindfully, I mean, your meals are going to be a ton of fun that way. So I, I would consider that to be a really big keystone habit as well that I tend to recommend. Yeah, I think that's excellent. Um, it's, yeah, as you were telling, uh, describing it, I was thinking of different situations. It's something that uh, I, I uh, struggle with as well. I mean, people that uh, are only too aware of this, it shows how tempting uh, looking at your phone is when you're eating because you know we, we fall into that trap ourselves yet we know the benefits of not doing it and I, I, like you said breakfast not really a problem but you know if I've trained a couple of people and I've got a meal to have I find out you know I'm, I'm on Instagram checking my messages replying to people or or you know whatever these little things that somehow I've uh, uh, convinced myself it's vital I do at that moment and and when I when I'm dieting so like for this photo shoot all of a sudden calories were were harder to come by there weren't wasn't the abundance of them and all of a sudden I was way more mindful about uh, that meal I you know my turn my phone over put it away sit down because I, you know, I knew I wasn't getting much more food that day or whatever compared to normal uh, compared to being at the top of a bulk and and without really it being a conscious decision I it, like you know or really having put much thought into it 
I suddenly became more mindful. And then I wasn't as hungry as you would expect to be when you're on a, a calorie deficit because mm -hmm. I was taking more time to eat the food and being aware of what I was doing. So I didn't really suffer with hunger despite being in a deficit. Whereas I think if, I, if I'd eaten at the normal rate, I'd have either not been able to get myself in that deficit or I'd have been constantly hungry because I'd have just inhaled the food and not yeah. let it had a time to, to digest. So um, there's, there's two things, two little practical tips that uh, I try and put into practice myself when I'm trying to be good at this, but also tell clients is uh, number one is when you're eating in a social setting, say you're out with people at a, a restaurant, try and be the last one to finish your meal. Uh, it just tends to get you to be in that thing of slowing down and enjoying it. And the, the other one, I can't remember where I picked this up, but they call it, they used to call it the 5, 10, 15, uh, protocol or something. And it was when your plate, uh, is put in front of you, you just wait five seconds rather than immediately diving in. Just give yourself that mm. five seconds to sort of chill and, and look at what you're about to enjoy. Uh, in between or after you take a mouthful, you put your knife and fork down for 10 seconds and then you chew each mouthful for 15, uh, 15 chews. And, um, it, that takes some real discipline at first because it basically feels like you're eating in slow motion. But if you're trying to um, eat, get full uh, without having a huge calorie meal, for example, if you're trying to you know, in, a, in a cut, I found it a really, really powerful way to finish a meal and, and actually feel quite satisfied. Uh, so, yeah, those, those are just two quick practical things that I've I found quite helpful. It's um, it's interesting. All all those strategies are under the same umbrella of basically just making you more aware of what you're doing. Because like, if you think about it, it's, it's the brain that is regulating your hunger and satiety mechanisms. It's not just your stomach being filled up with food. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these strategies like mindfulness or eating speed, or even there is research showing that when you eat from smaller plates, you tend to get more satiated compared to eating from larger plates. And if you think about it, it's the same mechanism. The food is on a smaller plate, so it appears to be bigger. You're, you have to be more aware of what you're putting into your mouth. So awareness and just slowing mm -hmm. down a little bit and finding time to actually noticing what ha what's happening in this crazy world where everything is happening so fast and there are so many distractions i think that's kind of what's encompassing the whole thing here so yeah 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 you're right yeah there's yes like like the plate size thing even cutlery size can uh yeah. can have an impact on that and 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 doing this um you know can help uh, as i've alluded to keep you in a calorie deficit when needed but also, I found uh, anecdotally, it seems to really improve digestion. Mm -hmm. So people that used to complain about um, so gas or bloating, and they're asking me, uh, should they take digestive enzymes and stuff like this? What can they do to improve digestion? And it's like, well, have you tried just slowing down and actually chewing your food? Um, and then when they do, uh, lo and behold, think, you know, th those things uh, tend to settle down. Okay, so there's a couple of, a couple of good habits um, to, to sort of anchor your diet and set yourself up for success. And then we talked a bit about um, people seeing their abs for the first time, other people bulking up uh, and getting a bit too fat perhaps and going through that process. So uh, what are some, well, we're going to go with percentage body fats, but we'll, then we maybe get a discussion which we have with Menno about how potentially the, uh, skewed people's views are on those. But do you feel there's some ranges that, number one, for feeling great day to day and just having high quality of life for a good rule of thumb to be in? And mm -hmm. then also, if you're looking to gain uh, muscle, is there a, an upper limit that you would suggest that is, is best, to, best to cap things at? Hey guys, just a second. Are you enjoying this podcast? 
If so, I'd really appreciate you dropping a five-star rating on the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast on iTunes. That will help me to grow this podcast, rank higher on the platform, and get more high-quality guests over time, which is a win-win for everybody. So if you could do this little bit of favor for me, I'll owe you one. Thanks a lot, guys, and let's continue. Yeah, so it's how sustainable a given body fat percentage is for one person versus another is going to be somewhat individual. Like I, I actually know some mm -hmm. people who can legitimately maintain like 7% body fat all the time and they feel just fine. Like they don't report any of the negative things that other people do when they are that lean. Other people, the majority of people, once they are at like 12% body fat or so, the returns are starting to diminish as they are getting fatter in terms of increased well-being. Like they don't necessarily have more energy or more libido or lower hunger levels when they go from 12% to 13% and then it just diminishes more and more. And then eventually probably you reach a point where it starts to backslide a little bit. So that is going to be somewhat individual. Now, I, I think when people are thinking about what body fat percentage is sustainable for them, they tend to focus a little bit too much on the outcome and just uh, what they see would look good or what is appealing just visually. And they don't think about what it actually takes to maintain that body fat percentage. And I, and I actually had a video not long ago, which I was hoping it would go viral because it was one of the most important videos I've ever done, but it, it was you know, moderately positively received. <laughs> and it was called uh, Your Ideal Body Fat Percentage Calculated. And basically, I put there, put together a calculator which gave you the lowest body fat percentage that you can realistically expect to maintain given the lifestyle trade-offs that you're willing to make. So it asks you questions like, how strict are you willing to be with your day-to-day -day nutrition? Like, do you want to just eat whatever you want? Or do you are you willing to eat like a, a reasonably healthy diet like an adult person should? Or are you willing to eat not just a healthy diet, but fundamentally a lower calorie diet with lower calorie foods? Are you willing to track your macros or follow a strict meal plan? And then, you know, similar questions about social events, how you manage your circadian rhythms, things like that. And based on that, it gave you kind of a score. And for most people, the result that they got was around 12% body fat. And that really mirrors my mm -hmm. experience as well. That is a body fat percentage, which I can sort of hover around year round and just basically eat like an adult person with some responsibility and with some good habits, have some calorie awareness, of course. And needless to say, I'm also resistance training and I'm not completely sedentary. So that will be a really good value for a lot of people. Now, for some people, that might be 15% body fat. And for some select few, it might be 8%. It, it kind of varies. But I think people should be thinking about what they are willing to take on and uh, what, what what is the kind of lifestyle that they actually want to live. It's, it's similar to instead of thinking about, okay, I want to have this job. I want to become an investment banker because that pays a lot of money. Instead of thinking about like, how would I want a typical day in my life to look like? Like, do I want to have 14-hour days and sit in an office and have a ton of money to spend, but I don't actually have the time to even do anything with that money because I'm working all the time? If not, then, you know, maybe don't just think about money, but think about the lifestyle implications. So that's the what's a good body fat percentage to maintain a side of the question. I don't know if that answers it, and then we can get into the upper limit of body fat as well. Yeah, I think that was excellent. I think there's a couple of key points. The first one is, of course, that, yes, what the best body fat is specific to you because, as you say, some people, natural propensity to, to be able to get away and feel great on low body fats, whereas being at that body fat would feel like death to other people. Uh, and then I suppose the other thing 
uh, is that people always measure their body fat visually by their abs and then understanding that actually some some guys uh, store more or less body fat there so you might actually have uh, quite a low body fat but your abs may not be really really clear or you may actually have higher body fat than you believe uh, but you actually can see your abs so it's yeah. basically that the abs aren't the only indicator of body fat which oh, is man. a little little yeah. aside but um yeah some hard hard, yeah. hard hard experiences about that like uh it's always it's always bad to be the negative exception to the rule like most people for most people <laughs> if they want to have awesome abs typically the answer is just get leaner and i i when i first saw my abs actually you know i'm six foot a hair over six foot and the first time i saw my abs i got down to 75 kilos i was dieting myself into the ground and i still only saw my abs if the lighting was good and i was flexing and then I was like, what the hell? Like, how lean, like, do I have to go down to 60 kilos? Hmm. What's going to happen here? And then I sent my pictures to a couple of reputable experts and they were like, dude, you're like 8% body fat already. Like, I'm sorry, but if you don't see your abs that well, you just have shit ab genetics. So it just varies. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, in a, <laughs> abs are something that seems to fascinate people. The amount of the amount of questions generated, uh, based on maybe it's biased because when I get lean, I can my abs chart reasonably well. So I suppose, I suppose again, there's my bias there. But uh, I don't invest much time in ab training yet, based on the questions I get from people. You'd think it was one of the most important things they could possibly do. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and actually, on a, a slightly different thing with that though, again is. I feel like uh, like I had a reasonably good uh, sporting background as a youngster, and then there was a period of time when I was probably sixteen or seventeen where I was I'd do like hundreds of crunches each day. So now, where I don't do any ab training or, or, or very little uh, for a long time, mm. I haven't. My maintenance volume for abs is quite low, but probably those few years of doing outrageous quantities contributed to the fact that they they're now there when I get lean. Um, which I think I, you know, J Jared Feather has discussed, I think as well, yeah, yeah. talking, talking about, which I think is an, another interesting element. So, uh, you know, for, for people to realize, you know, we've got, we've got a bit of a, a bit of a tangent about abs there, but I think it's <laughs> important for people to realize. Um, okay. So now, yeah, if you can tell us your thoughts about higher body fat percentages as you're bulking up and is there an upper limit there? Yeah. So higher body fat percentages or, I think in a way affect people to a similar degree to how low body fat percentages affect them to a different degree. So for some people, like there just comes a clear point where their well-being just actually starts going down. Like there is a nice uptick to a point as they start gaining weight. I'm, I'm similar in that regard. Like as I go from 9% to 10% to 11, 12, 13, 14, it's just like, man, I just feel better and better. I Energy levels are better. Sex drive is better. I sleep better. Hunger and satiety mechanisms are amazingly well functioning. And then it, it comes a point where I just start feel lethargic, sluggish, my work capacity in the gym starts going down, taking the stairs starts becoming like a real hassle. So there just comes a clear point where probably at this point, at the very least, I'm not benefiting from getting even higher in body fat than what I'm currently. And as I'm start, as I start cutting at that point, I actually start feeling better and better for the first couple of weeks. So probably that is a very good indication of what's a good sweet spot for myself, at least. And I think most people can find that through trial and error. Now, I think in general, for a lot of people, that upper limit starts coming probably under 20% body fat. I know that the 15% body fat mark is often touted mm -hmm. as that cutoff point. It's based on no clear evidence, certainly. it's. I think it's only important to mention 
because in recent years, and it started to change in this past one or two years maybe, but it, it has been touted by a lot of reputable experts and people that just the community looked up to in general as, okay, 15% body fat, at that point, insulin sensitivity goes to hell. Your systemic inflammation levels are going to go through the roof. You won't be putting on muscle very efficiently, and every extra calorie is just going to go into fat gain. Like, I think as a general rule of thumb, that 15% mark is is not a bad, bad advice to give people to not go over. If anything, because of tracking issues, like if you go from 13% body fat to 14 and then to 15, you can still see some changes in your body fat levels. Like, okay, I probably just got fatter. When you go from 16 to 17%, the changes are barely noticeable. So I think it, it can have some practical advantages, not to mention if someone is a bodybuilder, who wants to compete with some regularity or maybe a fitness model or just someone like you, you know, who wants to take a couple of pictures, you know, every once in a while to post it on Instagram and just to show people that you're walking the walk, then there are some practical downsides to getting too high in body fat. But I don't think that it has, the, for the general population, has been that beneficial, that excessive fear-mongering about 15% body fat is the upper limit of body fat that you should carry at any one time because I think it reinforced a lot of the perma dieting and chronic dieting tendencies that a lot of people tend to have anyway. I mean, you know this, like someone starts bulking, they just finish the cut really successfully. And, you know, at the end of a cut, they are a bit hungry. They are enthusiastic that they can finally start their gaining phase. And maybe they get a bit overzealous about reintroducing new foods. Maybe their food choices now are too palatable, too low in volume compared to how they were dieting. And they cannot control themselves. They gain a little, little bit too much body fat for the first couple of weeks. And instead of taking four months to go from 10% body fat to 13%, they do it in a month or two weeks. That sucks and that's bad. But now I think the best advice for them would be, okay, you know what? Damage is done. Just take it slow from now on and just gain. And don't worry too much about how fast you're going to reach 15% body fat. If you go up to 18% body fat, not a huge issue. And I think with that mindset, a lot more people would actually complete successful gaining phases and they wouldn't cut it short because of the fear of reaching this evil 15% body fat mark too fast. Yes. So yeah, that would be my input on that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think uh, the amount of people I've seen, they say they get down to like single digit for the first time, but then they're back up, you know, when they, as you say, they they eat the some food, they've been probably over restrictive. Uh, they enjoy a little bit of food and they're, they're very, almost overnight, they're back at 12%. Well, now they've only got 3% of wiggle room to gain before they're in theory need to cut again, which they can't generate any momentum and build any uh, sort of muscle building uh, momentum there. So yeah. yes, I think that's, that's a really valuable point. And then of course, the, the fact that, you know, actually how many guys in the gym are actually genuinely below 15% body fat anyway is, in my experience, not, yeah. not, not that many, uh, people, people seem to be, um, you know, underestimating their body fat by, by quite some margin. Oh, absolutely. Um, and of course, yeah, as you say, the research that the, there's, it's just not there to back that 15% threshold. Uh, you know, I, f I forget whose paper it was, but fairly recently they, they were showing there was no sort of, uh, anabolic resistance as your body fat increased uh, up higher to the 20 and, and beyond percentage. But then again, it, it may well come down to psychologically, how do you feel in yourself? Because of course, this is again, we've touched on, it's all supposed to be adding value to you. If you feel horrible in your own skin, then it, even if you maybe are gaining a little bit more muscle, that's not a trade-off worth making. So um, yeah, everything is is relative to the individual. And I think, again, going through these these experiences 
yourself is a, a hugely valuable thing um, and, and gives you that kind of that mindfulness of knowing, well, when I, I start to feel like this, as my weight approaches this number or my body fat goes up there and, and I, I, I'm just not functioning. Whereas I think a lot of people almost go through life in as far as their physique and, and, and mental well-being is almost like yeah. in a zombie state. They're, they're not taking that biofeedback. They don't re- recognize when they feel like crap. It's just maybe they always feel like crap, uh, perhaps is the re- the reason. But, but having that skill of understanding those, those, uh, those different sensations and feelings and energy levels that you have, uh, is, is vital. Uh, and in terms of it being your own coach as well and, and making smart choices. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's really funny because, you know, I've never been over, I've been over 90 kilos in my life once. That was like several years ago when, uh, I hit a bit of a rough patch and then I binged myself up. Other than that, I've never been over 90 kilos. I'm not, not an overly big boned person. I've always been kind of lighter, even, even as a kid. I've never been like a particularly heavy kid. Even when I was fatter, I wasn't that heavy. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not a, not a teenager anymore, but I have to admit it got into my head that man, I'm six foot, never been over 90 kilos. So 200 pounds. Like, am I a real man even? Like, what the <laughs> hell? And, and I decided, you know what? Like during this bulk, no matter what, but I'm going to finish over 90 kilos. Like I'm going to go up there and maybe this is what my body actually needs to finally hold on to some more muscle mass. Maybe I need to force my, force feed myself a bit beyond the point where I would normally cut off my bulking phase. And then I will retain some more muscle at the end of it. I went up there. Still looked not lean, but you know, with really kind lighting conditions and with a lot of flexing, I could still see some ab definition. So, okay, not terrible. Then I started cutting down and I cut down to about 12% body fat, I would say. And I made the evaluation that, well, let's just see here. I gained about nine kilograms of weight during this bulking phase and about one kilogram of muscle, if I look at the weight <laughs> difference. So, you know, of course, as you get more advanced, you will gain a less favorable proportion of lean mass to fat mass that is inevitable, but an eight to one ratio that is just a little bit hard to justify. So, you know, but I had to experience it on my own skin and sure as hell, I will not do that again. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly. I remember uh, after the first time I got really, really lean, uh, targeting the weight I wanted to get to at the, ne- at the next bulk before I started my diet again. And uh, I didn't ever make it, uh, but it was, slightly, it was just too ambitious. But also if I had made it, I'd probably, well, I don't think I'd have trumped your eight to one ratio. I'd have probably been having to do a, like a 10 to one ratio or something to be able to get to that weight, which is, which is not a, <laughs> not a trade-off worth making. But again, you have to, you have to, uh, I, I sort of worked out about 80% of the way there. This isn't happening, but, um, you have to go through that process, uh, which is, you know, it, it, the whole thing is, uh, about enjoying the process, learning the lessons, uh, and, and, you know, and, and evolving as you go. Um, which I think is, you know, well, so it's part of the thing that I enjoy and it's been so fascinating for me is, uh, being able to do that. Mm. Now, we're at the point where you're, you know, sustaining, uh, things. Uh, so back in the day, maybe you were training loads, really strict your diet. What does your training and nutrition look like f- for you now? What, you know, how often are you in the gym? Um, and you know, uh, uh, how closely are you monitoring what you eat? Are you tracking macros, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. So. My training is uh, fairly hardcore. I, I have to say, this is not necessarily going to be the answer that uh, <laughs> pe- people will expect based on my uh, talks about sustainability. But I will be honest, I just really like training. It gives structure to my day. And it is a time where I can listen to a podcast or something. I unwind. 
I can enjoy the introvert that I am or enjoy being the introvert that I am. So that is a fun time for me. So I'm in the gym seven days a week. Um, I have been brought up on the, or I've been educated by Menno that you've had on recently on your podcast. And I completed his personal trainer certification course. For a long time, I was skeptical about full body or high frequency training. I thought that that was a recipe for disaster in terms of your connective tissue. And uh, so I was always trying to limit myself to train a muscle group at most like three days a week. These days I train full body every day, basically. Calves are the only thing that I don't train every day. And that is ma- mainly because my calves are kind of more genetically gifted, I c- you could say. Oh, so. <laughs> oh that's, that hurts. Oh, imagine being can- calf genetically gifted. I'm looking at mine, I, I, I can barely see them. So, uh. <laughs> Yeah, well, I would much rather take small calves than have good abs. So, <laughs> that's, uh, Yeah, the grass is always greener. No, absolutely. Yeah, but uh, calves are the only thing. And, and also biceps, actually. I don't do arm isolation every day. But other than that... I chest, back, quads, hamstrings, I do train them every day. I should motivate myself to train abs as well, but they're just, maybe you can give some advice um, for me on that because it's just, once I get decently strong on weighted ab exercises, it's just a pain in the ass to keep loading them and they start feeling weird. But but anyway, so I train fairly hardcore and that is a big shift compared to what I was doing before. And the reason behind that mainly is that If I had to, I'm not too worried. I used to be very much along the lines of don't get too obsessive about training, take it more easily, look at sustainability. But on the other hand, training is fun. It is just a sport activity that you do for a certain amount of time every day or every other day or two days a week or whatever. You are at a specific location when you do it. And then when you leave that location, that activity is over and then you can move on with your life. And worst case scenario, if you burn yourself out on it or if you really overdo it, worst case scenario, I mean, of course, you could get injured. But if you train for muscle growth, it's fairly rare. And um, let's assume that that doesn't happen. So worst case scenario, you will just get burnt out on it and you take a week off or maybe a couple of weeks off or, or gut for a bit, a couple of months off. That sucks. Of course, you will lose some muscle. But in the grand scheme of things, you can just return to training again and then you can continue where you left off. You will regain the muscle and gain some more. And looking back after a couple of years, it will just not matter nearly as much as you thought it would. Now with diet, you cannot leave that behind. Like you, you cannot quit eating, right? I mean, it's, if you get burnt out on eating and dieting, then people don't fast for a couple of weeks. They don't stop eating. They will usually go on a binge or they let go of their good eating habits, which is then followed by even more restriction, which can mess with someone's relationship with food. So when it comes to training, I'm not that worried about getting burnt out or, or overdoing things. Now, I will say mm-hmm. that I could probably get similar results or maybe even as good results if I trained four days a week, maybe even three days a week with dedicated use of my time and being smart with programming. I could do that. But I just enjoy that hour or so that I spend there every day. The gym is close to my place. So I just go there and full body uh, volume is moderately high, around 20 sets for most muscle groups per week. And I have three or four movements for every muscle group that I'm just rotating through different intensities that I'm using to manage connective tissue injuries or prevent them from happening. And I'm just really enjoying that at the moment. Um, 
And so that's about training. Do you have any follow up on that or? Uh, yeah, well, I think first of all, uh, yeah, brilliant. Thanks for honesty is, uh, t training seven days a week. I think the thing is that, uh, if you're talking about sustainable, you know, if, if you enjoy something, it's sustainable. So the fact is that for you, uh, being in the gym is enjoyable and therefore it's not a problem. It's not taking away from your life. Now you maybe, I suppose someone listening might have to make that trade off. If getting in the gym is a bit of a bit of an undertaking to them, they're probably not listening to this podcast. But if it is, then maybe they can manage their sustainability by its frequency is the variable that's at play for them that they maybe only go three times a week. Yeah, um, whereas for, for, for you, uh, if I told you you could only be in the gym three times a week, it would probably take away from you know your life potentially and actually you wouldn't be so enjoyed and fulfilled so that understanding yourself and where your priorities lay and your uh, what where you what you enjoy doing is vital yeah. for that too um and i i quickly like I, i really love the quote of uh diet you can't leave that behind yeah. uh so i thought that was a great a great point but yeah so now ca ca carry on yeah so that that is uh, that is on the training front for me And yeah, like you said, you know, I couldn't make it work three days a week. And I'm fairly advanced. I'm not an elite uh, lifter by any means, but I'm decently advanced at this point. But I could still progress three days a week if I had to make it work. And maybe I will have to make it work due to other engagements that I may have on the work front or relationships or whatever. Um, so in terms of diet, I do not track my calories or macros for the vast majority of the year. So when I'm gaining muscle or maintaining, I don't typically maintain. I either lean gain or, or cut. And of course, I prefer to spend much more time gaining or that, that is my aim at least. And if I don't mess things up, then that's what's happening. And I do not track my macros during those times. That said, of course, my diet is very legit, like a lot of veggies, a lot of fruits, very decent food choices for the most part. I don't, I manage my food environment well, so I don't keep things in the house that could make me overeat potentially. I know my culprit foods, that is another thing I learned over many years. So peanut butter, nuts, uh, dark chocolate and things like that. They are a great source of nutrition potentially, but I don't have them around the house because they have been problem problematic items for me in the past. And I enjoy social events as well, but I do them like an adult again with some sense of responsibility. I will have some alcohol, you know, every once in a while. On average, maybe six glasses of wine per week, maybe four glasses of wine per week on average, you know. So it could be two glasses of wine three days a week or something like that. It's rare that I drink more than three days a week. And that is something, again, that I can enjoy in moderation and it has no detrimental effects on my progress. And then if I want to get very lean, like I am now, so probably I'm closing in on about 8% body fat. And I just honestly, A, want to see how it looks like. And B, uh, it will be just beneficial for, you know, for posting content and things like that. I now transitioned into tracking macros, or I should say I tracked my macros once. I put together a loose meal plan for myself that I have. I know exactly what I'm going to be eating for every meal, essentially. And I just follow that and I'm dropping fat at a decent rate. So, but that is like 1% of my year. And before this, I haven't tracked macros for two years and I've managed to bulk, to cut, to maintain, do everything without macro tracking. And that is my nutrition. Cool. Uh, so yeah, you, you, got, you identify some trigger foods, uh, which I think is an important thing to realize for people. If, uh, if, if you've got a food that when you come home at the end of the day, you tend to reach for and blow out on not yeah. having them around is a really simple hack to, uh, you know, or habit to be in. Uh, you know, if it's in the kitchen, it will get eaten eventually. So, uh, so just yeah, don't absolutely. have it there. Um, and also interesting, uh, that people, 
uh, can know that they don't have to religiously track their macros because, um, you know, I, I track mine uh, fairly frequently. I haven't tracked them for six weeks now, but probably before that, I mm. tracked them for 12 weeks straight or whatever. But the thing is, the, the probably the leanest I've ever been, uh, I didn't track macros then. I just uh, I just ate the same foods and ate slightly less of it and kept eating a little bit less until I was as lean as I wanted to be. So, you know, before my fitness pal existed, people got in shape. So we yeah. don't have to rely exclusively on uh, on those those tools. Um, so, yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I do the same, basically. So at one point, you know, when I got below like 9% body fat, then it just got to the point where my energy levels were lower, my sleep was suffering every once in a while, like just things just started going south. And I was like, you know what? I don't feel very good at this point. And I had a week or two where on the scale, I noticed nothing. On my appearance, I noticed nothing. So if I'm going to be suffering here, then I might as well make sure that it actually works and it's doing its job. So I, I did backtrack my macros on a couple of days and indeed they were like decently high, typically higher than what I need or what I needed in the past to get like very lean. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, let's take away a couple of food items here and here. Okay, now it's around this point in terms of calories. This will be good. And I will just follow this meal plan and like you, I don't count things religiously and I don't put things on the scale. I made changes over time like, okay, instead of four bags of strawberries, I will have three. Like literally that simple, which sounds very old school and bro-ish, yeah. but it is predictable and is doing the job so reliably. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, that's the thing. Uh, people, that, that reliability is a, is a crucial thing as well, though. I think when uh, when it's getting hard and the, the fat is harder to remove, because uh, you know food labels can be out by so much that if you're using a different food group uh, even though in theory you're in a deficit you, you you may not be whereas at least if you I suppose if you're eating the same stuff just a smaller quantity you know for sure that you are uh, eating a lower number of calories yeah. um, and then it also avoids people coming up with the really weird concoctions they have when they get to the end of the day and they're like oh I've got 11 grams of protein 7 grams of fat and 13 <laughs> grabs of carbs what can i what can i crowbar into that and yeah. some of some of the pictures people have sent me of the weird things that they've managed to put together is is pretty amusing uh so um okay so cool we're we've taken up a lot of your valuable time here so thank you very much for that before uh we we move on i'd like to we'll have an opportunity for people to find out a little bit more about you um You've given us some great tips on um, some habits and some keystone habits people can have in place uh, and mindfulness and and some really interesting insight into your journey and how you go about things, which I, I think is great. So let's uh, we want to learn a little bit more about you uh, with a quick fire round. Now you've cheated because you've listened to the Menno Henselman's podcast. So you know one of the, you know the question that's coming up, so you may have prepared for that as well. But I'll try to forget about them quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, first of all, is the either or. So is it? Um, Pizza or burger? Um, I, I love both, but I think with burgers, you have to, you can be a bit more creative. Like you can put fries into them or you can do funky things with cheese. So yeah, I will go with burger. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, chocolate or peanut butter? And I know you're going to say you want both, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just put it this way. If I could have one superpower, it might be for my body to treat peanut butter in terms of calories like as if it was water so I could eat as much of it as possible so you're, I think that answers it you're a, you're a peanutter uh, oh yeah uh, okay beach holiday or city break uh, yeah for me city break I like we were in Sicily not long ago with my with my girlfriend and 
man, the beach thing just gets so boring to me so fast. It's it's fun to like lie down and enjoy the sea view a little bit and take a plunge, but it gets really boring really fast for me. So yeah, more so city life. Okay. Uh, so if you're having a steak, rare or well done? Uh, well done. I'm not a very sophisticated person. So <laughs> you are the first person to give me that answer. Uh, okay. Uh, eggs scrambled or poached? Um. Scrambled, because then you can get a bit more creative with the, you know, what you're putting into it and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Fair point. Actually, uh, not not an either or question, but one I meant to ask earlier when you said you love going to the gym. What what gym? What's the gym you train at? Is it like a bodybuilding type gym, uh, or just a regular big box commercial gym? Yeah. It's 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 weird. It's a smaller gym. It's not like an underground basement type gym. It's fairly modern, but it's pretty small. And at first you look at it and you say like, ah, oh, this is kind of crap. But they have basically everything that you need. Like they have even things like Olympic rings and some smart machines that sometimes you don't have in other gyms. So. Yeah, it's it's uh, more so bodybuilding type, but fairly gem pop, like okay. the, the audience that goes there. Yeah, yeah. So I was gonna, I was going to ask because you love going there. It's 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 not because of the necessarily the environment that created at that gym so much. Like I know when we we're talking to Valentin, I was talking about Dash Gym and the incredible atmosphere oh, there yeah. that that would draw you in. That this is more uh, an internal, mo- you know, intrinsic uh, motivation to train as opposed to that this this environment's incredible. Oh yeah, it's to be to okay. be fully honest, this gym is full of assholes. Like I like I <laughs> often have to like um, take a deep breath before I go in there. Like okay, you will be in the gym working out soon. You can make it through. But yeah, if I was working out in a gym like Dust Gym, I've been there. It would be oh, completely different experience. Yes, yeah, I've heard amazing things about it. Um, okay, so that that question that is supposed to take you by surprise, but you may have been prepared for. Uh, tell me something about you that people probably don't know. And I actually heard it yesterday in, in your interview, but uh, for some reason I was I didn't prepare to see what <laughs> I was. That's good, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Thing that, things that people don't know about me. Okay, I'm a huge Manchester United supporter. Oh, yeah. good man. And uh, okay, just, just for one second to stay on the theme of football, uh, I really, really dislike Real Madrid. <laughs> and, and even though I'm a Manchester United supporter, I quite like Liverpool as well because, I don't know, they have a, co- a likable coach at the moment and their players are also fairly likable. And I used to like Tottenham Hotspur, but since last year when they beat Ajax in the Champions League, I don't like them anymore. Ah, okay. So basically, got some some uh, partisan football uh, uh, th- theories going on there. It's interesting. So yeah, not many people like Man U and Liverpool, but I get your point. Jurgen Klopp's like a likable guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and yeah, he's doing a great job there. Okay, interesting. Uh, and 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 why why the hatred of Real Madrid? Is it because they buy all the best players from Man U? Uh, yeah, that, that's how that's how it started. But honestly, I think these three Champions Leagues that they won are like one of the biggest fluke results in football history. Like they had like they had games where it's just almost unbelievable how much luck and referee help and all of those things culminated in their favor like the Bayern Munich game two years ago I don't Mm -hmm. know if you remember that Uh, also like one year ago when they were playing against Bayern Munich also crazy amount of luck ironically a Hungarian referee was pretty much knocked Bayern Munich out against them in that game and uh, yeah also like just in the Liverpool final when the keeper is making the two ridiculous mistakes and then also their players are just not very likable, like Ramos, Sergio Ramos, like Jesus. It's yeah, not a pretty picture. <laughs> you know, Ramos, not a Ramos fan there. I think yeah. it's safe to say. <laughs> yes, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think you're right that you know three Champions Leagues is an incredible achievement, but it did seem to be uh, some some helping hands along the way. So oh yeah, uh, there's <laughs> that. Okay, 
So after a little football rant there, um, where can people find out a little bit more about you um, and the, the work that you do? Yeah, um, it was great talking to you and thanks for the question. So um, we have a website called sustainableselfdevelopment.com and uh, you can find basically everything that, that is the central hub for most things. And it is currently down because we are moving to a new platform. But in the meantime, I don't know if my name is going to be in the podcast description, then you just type that name into YouTube and I will come up. And I'm also on Instagram. It's SSD for Sustainable Self-Development. So SSD Able. And I'm not crazy active there, but, you know, sometimes I post something fun in there. So might cool. want to check it out. Cool, cool. Okay, so yeah, guys, definitely uh, check out Abel's uh, podcast. There's a huge number of guests that I mentioned earlier, which actually means this question is probably, if there's anyone in the world I should ask this, uh, it's you. Who should I interview next? Ooh, yeah, yeah. Um, so have you interviewed Eric Helms already? N no. Okay, so yeah, definitely get him on. Um, he's a great talking partner. Um, if you do you venture out from fitness at all or is it only always about fitness so far it's always been about fitness but i'm I'm happy to take a suggestion well okay so if you like james clear i had him on the podcast yeah 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 um atomic habits atomic habits yeah yeah but he, he has just a lot of good thoughts about just succeeding in life in general like he's a very thoughtful guy and then there is also um, Cal Newport, if you can have him on. He's uh, one of the best podcast guests in general. He has always something unique to say. I really, I've, I've read uh, two of his books, but I've never heard him on a podcast. I'll have to check those out. Yeah, and then um, there is Mike Matthews, Muscle for Life. Um, mm -hmm. So he is a really good guest about business-related things. Like, it's, it's basically doing like listening to an interview with him about business and specifically fitness business because that's what he's doing is like taking a, a i don't know a two thousand dollar course about business or something like that it's so insightful and it can also be very motivational he has a lot of good gems to drop along those lines um and yeah and and then you know the other names are probably those that you have heard before um greg knuckles great podcast guest in general and he's, he's also one of those guys uh, that you can ask him about some unconventional things. Like he's a powerlifter, a world record record holder. So most people ask him about powerlifting related things. But you can ask him about hypertrophy, also even business stuff. Um, just a, a lot of things that you wouldn't think he has some thoughts. But he's kind of like Menno in that even when it's some re seemingly tangential topic, he will have some deep, well-formulated things that you probably haven't heard from other people. So I would highly recommend him as well. And if I can think of something else, I will drop you over in an email. <laughs> yeah, cheers. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Greg uh, and Menno, I, I wonder if it's like, have they sat there, uh, you know, like f f thinking their philosophy through on all these different um, questions they get asked and sort of seemingly random subjects or is it just that they're incredibly good at formulating their thoughts and articulating them quickly because uh, yeah sometimes I've hear them and you, they seem on this really like this strange tangent yet they have a very coherent point to make about it so it's impressive yeah it's it's also they're just crazy ridiculously intelligent that helps like it's it's, <laughs> it's um and part of intelligence is very good nerve conductivity like you just think faster and so probably if they have thought of something before and they didn't even think it through that much they can just tap into that really quickly but also they are just like spending a lot of their time researching what one name i forgot is uh mm. mario tomic as well he he he's a really good guest yes. as well okay. also like 
kind of personal development slash business slash fitness because he's kind of doing all of them. And he, he has had a very interesting journey and a lot of good stuff to share. So I would also recommend him. Cool. Okay. Awesome. I'll, uh, I'll get those guys uh, their emails sent out to them, see if we can get them on. Nice one. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time today. I've, I really appreciate that. It was great. Awesome. It was an absolute pleasure. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, then please, once again, consider dropping a five-star rating on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me and it would be truly helpful. And if you're interested in more cool stuff, then you could visit my YouTube channel. If you type in sustainable self-development podcast there or even SSD podcast, it will come up. And if you're interested in working together with me, then you can check out the Calendly link in the show description. There you can book a free call with me. We can hop on that call, chat about your goals, challenges, determine if we are a good fit. And if that is the case, then we could be working together going forward to get you to the results that you want. So that's all I had to say for today. I hope you enjoyed this once again. And with that, see you next time.